morning. Our first reading comes from the book of Judges, chapter 3, verse 31. Listen now to the word of the Lord. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Our second reading comes from, uh, our second reading is also in Judges chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers were kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel, they ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, happy Mother's Day to uh, all the mothers out there. Um, welcome. Uh, this now is the uh, second sermon uh, in the series of sermons uh, I'll be preaching on the book of Judges. And so last week we heard about uh, Othniel, the, uh, the pattern who sets this uh, paradigm for um, the major judges, the six major judges. And if you were able to attend uh, FG this past week, you uh, learned about Ehud, the left-handed assassin, who is the second of the six major judges. And so today we're going to look at uh, Shamgar, the first of the six minor judges. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made. And we, um, we want to hear um, somehow your good news uh, from these Judges, uh, someone even like Shamgar, would you help us to hear your word and in the hearing to obey? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, this past Friday during FG, uh, I mentioned that I would be preaching on Shamgar and someone said that Shamgar was one of his favorite Bible characters. I had sort of a doubt in my face, uh, but then he went on to and proceeded to say, that's from Judges 3.31, and recited the entire verse from memory. And I thought, wow, that's, that's something. Um, but my guess is that he's not normal, um, and that most of you have probably never heard of Shamgar, or if you have, you certainly have not memorized Judges 3.31. Um, as I said, he's the first of six minor judges that you have probably never heard of. Uh, in addition to Shamgar, the others are Jer the Gileadite, Tola the son of Pua, a man of Issachar, Ibzan the Bethlehem, Elon the Zebulonite, and Abdon the son of Hillel the Parathonite. Um, after today, you will never hear of these names again. Uh, collectively, in the book of Judges, these six minor judges ruled for 70 years, which is a pretty long duration and symbolically a significant number. Uh, one of the minor judges, Jer of Gad, ruled for 22 years 
and his family governed 30 cities. So, you know, that's, that's a pretty significant reign. Uh, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of power that they amassed. Um, but he only gets three verses. And some of the other minor judges, they, they're also associated with, with great wealth. They're hints of a royalty, suggestions of, of dynasties being passed on to their children and grandchildren. Um, but we just don't know very much about these minor judges. That's why they're called minor judges. because Not because they're not important, but we simply just don't have very much information about them. The major judges, as I said, follow this broad pattern of sin, suffering, crying out to God, then God sending a deliverer, and then the land having a period of rest. Uh, but the minor uh, judges, as far as I can tell, there's no pattern, there's nothing that kind of connects them in any sort of meaningful way uh, as, as far as a pattern goes. Uh, we're not told that God even explicitly raised up these minor judges, nor that it was in response to the people crying out for help, nor that the Spirit of God empowered them, nor that the land you know, had a period of rest after their reign. All of those things could have happened, we just don't know, because there's such a brief piece of information about them. And so God's presence and work through them is not explicit. And so I want to be careful that I don't say too much about them in terms of speculation. Shamgar today basically gets one verse. He gets one verse in the whole Bible. So this week I was thinking about um, preaching on Deborah instead because Deborah is called the, the mother of Israel and it's, it's Mother's Day, so I thought that's a good tie-in for today. But then you would have had to do uh, FG's on Shamgar this week and it's really hard to do a Bible study on one verse. So I thought, okay, I'll, take, I'll do the sermon on the one verse and we'll do the Bible study on, on Deborah. Um, one verse we get about Shamgar. We know that he comes after Ehud, the last of the the last uh, judge that we read about, and he's a contemporary, according to Judges five, of Deborah and Jael, and so he's one of the earlier judges before things completely spiraled down uh, in the book of Judges. We also know that his name Shamgar is not a Jewish name, and the fact that he is identified as the son of Eneth makes him even more likely a foreigner. According to archaeologists, Aneth was a warrior goddess associated with Baal, the the chief of the Canaanite gods. And they've even discovered arrowheads with the phrase, so-and-so, son of Aneth, suggesting that perhaps there was a group of warriors who had uh, Aneth, this warrior goddess, as their uh, patron or patroness as they went to war and battle. So the son of Aneth could mean, uh, for Shamgar, that he was perhaps part of the military at some point in his life, or that maybe he's a mercenary soldier who saved Israel, or that he comes from a family that worships Aneth, or perhaps that they, as a family, they've just sort of taken on the local customs and they took on local names because that's all the kids in the area, that's how they named their children. Um, One other sort of guess, an educated guess we might make, is that he's uh, from the southern tribes um, because the Philistines, uh, whom he kill, kills, they're from the south. And so it makes sense that he's likely fighting uh, in the south. Some scholars have suggested that perhaps he's from the tribe of Simeon, because that's the only tribe in the book of Judges that is not associated with any of the other uh, 11 judges. And so 
some scholars point out that there's one judge associated with each of the 12 tribes, and Simeon is not, and so maybe he's part of that tribe. Uh, Simeon is in the south. That's where he seems to have lived and fought, so it's, I guess it's possible. So here's what we know. It appears that he's an outsider, possibly, maybe probably a Canaanite, not likely a native or pure uh, Israelite, and possibly uh, not even a worshiper of God. Uh, I won't repeat last week's sermon, but again, we see someone who is not a native Israelite coming to the rescue of God's people. We see again that God's rescue is coming from the margins, from unexpected people and unexpected places. And so in this, he's very much like the two judges we looked at already, Othniel and Ehud. And that's really about it. That's about all I can really say uh, about him. Um, So let me just make two uh, brief, two minor uh, reflections on Shamgar with you today. The first thing I want you to notice here is that Shamgar, he, he did something. He did something. It's a big deal that he killed 600 Philistines. We don't know why he killed them, um, but we do know that they were the enemies of God's people later uh, in the story. We know, of course, all of us, the story of Goliath, who was a Philistine, perhaps the most famous one of them all, uh, who taunted the armies of God. Um, so it's reasonable to think that uh, prior to David that they were harassing the Israelites and were an ongoing enemy. Um, I think it also sets up the story of David later because, again, remember I said that this is, it takes a kind of a pro-David stance in in this book and reminds us that David will defeat the Philistines as the Shamgar here. He did what he could do. He took action. Uh, It's not necessarily that he killed all 600 at once, perhaps over time. He killed whom he could. He did what he could do, and he's remembered for it. We don't remember him, but the people of Israel remembered him. In Judges 5, in the Song of Deborah, which celebrates the victory over Sisera and the Moabite army, Shamgar's name gets mentioned. This song is one of the oldest texts that we have in the entire Bible, and Shamgar is remembered. His name is used, in fact, as a timestamp because he was so well-known among the people, right? When we say something like... Um, It happened during the days of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and JFK. We all have some sense, okay, that's kind of the the 60s. And when we hear those names, we associate it, not just those people in the time, but the kinds of um, ethos or what was going on at that time, right? We think of the moon landing, the the Beatles, the hippies, uh, civil rights, and all, all, all of that. Like All those things come to mind when we hear those names, because they're so associated with the time. And so for the Israelites, not for us, but for them, when they heard Shamgar, they would just say, it was during the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath. People, oh yeah, those are really bad times. That's what they remembered. According to Judges 5, there was no law, there was no protection. Public roads were abandoned. People had to travel by the back roads. Village life in Israel ceased. Right? It was a very hard time for the people Marauding bands, uh, Philistines probably, plundered these villages. And life was was dangerous. It was a time of fear and terror. Commerce slowed. There was uh, just uncertainty about life as a whole. And so maybe Shamgar, you know, during, maybe he had a little farm, some some cattle. 
Uh, and he saw the devastation firsthand. He saw the struggle uh, in his own family and in his own village. And so in this time of chaos and danger, Shamgar did something about it. He did something. He, he didn't just hide out in fear, as maybe many of the other people did. And so I think it, this, this tells me that I can do something, too. And that you can do something. You don't have to, you know, look far away. You can just look around and ask yourself, what needs to be done? What needs to be done? What can I do? There's always work to be done, of course. There's always ministry that can use your help. It's been a while since I've said it, but let me say, you know, say this again. You can't do everything, but you can always do something. There's always something that you can do. And um, you know, when you become a member of this church, we always tell you that the only difference between becoming a member and a non-member is that we expect the members of the church to serve. We invite everyone to serve, but for members, we, we just expect and assume that you will serve. That's the difference. We expect you to do something. In Mark 14, there's a story of uh, a woman who poured an alabaster jar of expensive perfume on Jesus. And and some thought that it was very wasteful, right? This this very expensive perfume, they just poured it on Jesus. And Jesus said, she has performed a good service for me. And And then Jesus said, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. And I I love that sentence. She did what she could. You know? Not what she couldn't do. She didn't, you know, lead Bible study as far as we know. Uh, She didn't join the the tech team at her church. Um, She did what she could. And I think you and I have the same calling to do what we can. It doesn't matter if others think it's a waste that maybe what you're doing for God is a waste. In fact, it is a waste. By any sort of worldly standards, what you do for Christ is a waste. If we're going to be very pragmatic, being here today, worshiping on Sunday, when you could be at home or when you could be at work, being more productive, is wasteful. Absolutely. Uh, Bill Gates Uh, once said, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. He's right. Right? There's a lot more things that he could be accomplishing than sitting in a church for an hour, you know, listening to a sermon. He's absolutely right. And yet, and yet, Several years ago, uh, Bill Gates, in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, said this. He was talking about why he was doing some of the, uh, the, the charitable work that he was doing. He said that the moral systems of religion, I think, are super important. Isn't that interesting? We've raised our kids in a religious way. They've gone to the Catholic church that Melinda goes, goes to, and I participate in. It's a waste of time, and it doesn't mean he's a Christian or anything like that, but he finds that the, the, the moral system, at least, has some uses. 
You know, I, I do think that a lot of what we do can be or look like a waste of time and resources, right? Um, people ask, but, you know, why do we go on short-term missions? Why don't we just send that money instead of actually, you know, going and doing some labor that you could hire other people to do? It's, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Why do people go, you know, why are people going this summer to uh, West Virginia? Or why are people going to uh, volunteering with Pastor Dohi to uh, work with our VBS? Right? You could be spending that time at work or going on a nice vacation. It's a waste of time. Absolutely. And yet I think Jesus would say to us, it is an opportunity to perform a good service for him. And I think that that's a good waste of time. It's a good waste of resources. Because in the end, what matters is that we do have to answer to God. And can we and will we be able to say, I did what I could do. I did what I could do. Secondly, not only did Shemgar do something, he did something with what he had. He did something with what he had. He used an ox goad to kill the Philistines. Uh, I, I doubt any of you or many of you have ever used an ox goad or even know what that is. It's basically a, a cattle prod. So it's like a, like a long stick and you like poke people with it. Not people. <laughs> you, you poke cattle with it to get, get them to move, right? Um, so sometimes uh, it would have like a, a metal tip at the end of it, you know, a sharp a pointer. Uh, so that, that's what you know, farmers or, or ranchers, I guess, that's what they use. Um, that's what he used, presumably because that, that's all he had. He didn't have you know, other weapons. Because according to Judges 5, there were no shields or spears in Israel during Shamgar's day. Isn't it interesting? It says no spears, not swords, no spears. And so he used this cattle prod uh, instead. It's probably a hyperbole that there was no weapons at all. But even later in the days of King Saul, the Israelites were prevented from having weapons by the Philistines. 1 Samuel 13 says there was no smith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said the Hebrews must not make swords or spears for themselves. So all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles. So for all their you know, farming instruments, they actually had to go and pay to have them sharpened by the Philistines. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and one-third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. Right? So that's, that was the reality. There were no weapons. And so he had to make his own weapon, or he improvised what he had. Remember last week, Ehud did the same thing. He had to make his own dagger. And Shamgar used what was available. He didn't have the latest military tech. He doesn't even have the arrowheads that some of the other sons of Anath apparently had. And so I think there's no use for us or anyone to complain about what you don't have, right? Or waiting for when conditions are perfect to do something. A makeshift spear doesn't seem like much, but it's still something that he was able to use to deliver Israel. 
You know, it, what, as I was reading through this, it seems to me that the first few judges uh, sounds like um, it sounds a little bit like a game of uh, the board game Clue. Do you ever play that game Clue, where you have to um, guess who the murderer is, where they did it, and with what weapon? Right, right. You say, for example, Colonel Mustard did it in the ballroom with a candlestick. Right? No. Okay. So you. Okay. <laughs> um, right. During FG, uh, you heard about Ehud. Ehud did it with a double-edged dagger in the bathroom. This week, you hear about Jael, who, who will do it with a spike in the tent. Right? And Shamgar, you know, he does it with, with an ox goad, with this, this uh, poking stick. They're all like MacGyver, making these makeshift weapons to use whatever is available. They make do with what they have, not what they don't have. Uh, in fact, this word, uh, oxgood, appears only here in the whole Bible, and scholars aren't really sure if that's even what it is. It's, it's an educated guess at what this is. Uh, the Septuagint actually translates this as a plowshare, because they're, they're not really sure. Others think that it might have been just the, the horn of a cattle that, that he's using. Um, they just use whatever, right? Later, we'll hear about Gideon using torches and jars, Samson using the, the jawbone of a donkey to kill another thousand Philistines. People just use whatever is available. They're not waiting for the perfect opportunity, the perfect weapons, all to have everything in place before they do something. You know, I imagine a lot of people saw the Philistines attack and oppress their peoples and destroy their villages. Everyone went to get their, you know, ox goads sharpened and paid for it. Maybe they were all just waiting for someone to do something about it, or they're just kind of just kind of like just putting up with it. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they're just waiting until they got better weapons, right? I mean, Shamgar could have thought all those same things. He could have thought, "Hey, you know, I'm not even a I'm not even an Israelite. I'm just a foreigner. I don't even belong to these people." He could have come up with a lot of excuses why he didn't do anything. He could have had a lot of actually valid reasons why he didn't do anything. But he instead, he did something with what he had. The other day, someone shared uh, this word in regard to mission work. Blessed are the flexible. Blessed are the flexible. Right? Because in mission work, things rarely go as planned, and so you need to be able to kind of adapt to the, the changing situations, be willing to, you know, scrap the schedule and, and all the you know, plans that you laid out. Otherwise, you, you know, you're going to be miserable, you're going to make everybody around you miserable. You have to have that flexibility. It, it's sort of the, this, this shamgar approach to missions. And I would say to, to ministry in general, and maybe really even to life, to have the flexibility to do what you can with what you have. The perfect day to serve with all the perfect resources and gifts is never going to come. It won't. If you're waiting for that perfect day before you do something, it's never going to happen. Do what you can with what you have today. Don't lie to yourself thinking that, you know, I'll serve, I'll serve when I have more time. You won't. Don't lie to yourself that you know, things are going to change and when things get better, and then I'll get involved. It won't. And you won't. 
it's easy to not do something because of a million different excuses. And again, some of those reasons might be very valid, but you've still got to do something with what you have. Right? Those of you who are in high school, I mean, you think you're really, really busy now, right? Right? I know. I was in high school once. You are. I, 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 I know. But ask the kids who are in college. See if they think high school was really busy compared to what they're going through now. Those of you in college, you think it's, it's tough, right? You got finals, you got classes, all that. Ask the people who are working, who are single and working, and ask them if they're busier and under more stress. Those of you who are just working, those of you who are single, ask those who got recently married and see what their life is like. And those of you who just got recently married, ask those who've got kids. And on and on. It doesn't get easier. It really doesn't. Right? If you think, you know, I'll go on a mission trip when things get... That day's never going to come. It's not. When things get easier, I'll, I'll serve, you know, with the children's ministry, or I'll do this, I'll do... It's never going to come. You've got to do what you can, imperfectly, with what you have. What needs to be done, and what have you got? Maybe you haven't got all the time in the world right now, but you've got other things, other resources that you can contribute. Do what you can with what you have now. Uh, This quote is a little out of context, but G.K. Chesterton said, if a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing badly. If a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. He was talking about parenting, actually. Um, But if there are things that are worth doing, and if it can only be done badly, it's still worth doing. It's still worth doing. Like, if you can't go to FG every week, go every other week. If you can't go every other week, go every month. It's still worth doing. If you can't sing perfectly in tune, is it still worth praising God? Absolutely. Sing out of tune. If you don't know how to pray, you don't have all the right words, you don't don't think you're a person who is a, a good prayer, pray badly. Pray badly. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. You know, a, a little while ago, we had a, a leaders meeting, and the guest speaker suggested that we practice imperfect, imperfect hospitality, right? He said that instead of waiting to invite people to your home when the house is all perfectly clean and you have time to prepare a sumptuous meal, just, just invite people over and order pizza, right? He encouraged us to just, just practice hospitality like bad hospitality. It's okay. Is it worth inviting people over? Yeah, then it's worth doing it badly. It's a Shamgar principle of ministry. Do something with what you have. Let's not make excuses and wait for what we don't have. Uh, You know, this week I try to find out what the name Shamgar means. And uh, no one knows what his name really means because it's not a, it's not a, um, a Hebrew uh, word. So different scholars have you know, all kinds of different uh, ideas. 
Um, but one of the suggestions is that the name is related to the word sword. Uh, I'm not convinced that's, that's correct, but I, but I like the idea. Right? A guy without a sword, living in a time when swords are banned, is named sword and fights without a sword. Right? I mean, God clearly has a sense of humor. And God doesn't need all the best resources to do deliverance. In fact, it's just the opposite, right? In our weakness, God can demonstrate his power. Remember the story of David? When all the professional soldiers were afraid to take on Goliath, he went and challenged him. He tossed away conventional weapons and used what he had. Right? Not what he didn't have. He used what he had. Matthew 14, Jesus said to 5,000 people with what he had. And not even what he had, what what the little boy had, right? The the five loaves and the two fish. Jesus did what he could with what he had. God can turn a little into much. He doesn't expect us to do what, what we can't do. So what is it that you have? What is it that you have today? What is it that you know how to do? God can use that. God can use that. So let's do something with what we have. Let's pray. God, we, um, <clears throat> we know that you are able to deliver, to rescue us, to rescue your people with very little. And God, sometimes um, we, we just, we're fearful people. Um, sometimes we just are waiting for the right moments to have all the right things, to get all our ducks in order. Um, but God, you call us to serve. as we are with what we have. And so, God, would you help us to to move, to minister, to do something? It doesn't have to be big, God. I know that we don't have to go and kill 600 Philistines. We don't have to have some major project in our lives for you to accomplish something great. But you call us to, to serve with what we have. And you have promised us that you have given us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that if we ask you for anything, you will give it. And that we will lack nothing in your service. So God, help us to open our eyes to see the needs around us. And God, help us to do something. Help us to do something with what we have. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now I would want to invite you all to the Lord's table.